Hello, this is the UCLA Housing Voice Podcast. I'm Shane Phillips. This episode, we're joined by Gabriel Alfelt of the London School of Economics to talk about skyscrapers. Yes, skyscrapers. When urban planners are taught about how cities grow, they're really just given a two-dimensional model, usually one with a central business district where demand and rents and density are highest, and a smooth decline as you move further out from the urban core. The third dimension, height, is implied in that model, but never really scrutinized. Skyscrapers are a sort of platonic ideal of height within cities, and so they make a great starting point in that analysis. Despite their prominence, researchers still know very little about skyscrapers, including whether they actually make for good investments on the part of developers, how they shape the cities in which they're built, or the ways they're shaped by those cities. Gabriel, along with his co-author Jason Barr, who I also want to give a lot of praise for the work that's gone into this research, are some of the first to tackle these questions in a really comprehensive and evidence-based way. I think it serves as a great introduction to how cities evolve, both in space and in time. The Housing Voice podcast is a production of the UCLA Lewis Center for Regional Policy Studies, and we receive production support from Claudia Bustamante and Olivia Arena. Send me your feedback or show ideas at shanephillips at ucla.edu. Give us a five-star rating and a review. And don't forget to share us with your friends and colleagues on social media. We do read your feedback and are always looking for ways to improve the show. With that, let's get to our interview with Gabriel Allfelt. Gabriel Alfelt is professor of urban economics and land development at the London School of Economics, coming to us via Berlin, and he's here today to talk with us about skyscrapers. As I'm sure our listeners will pick up in this conversation, there probably aren't that many people who have given more thought to the role of skyscrapers in our cities, and so we're excited to have him on to look at them through a few different lenses. Professor Alfelt, welcome to the Housing Voice podcast. Hi, nice seeing you guys. And Pavo is my co-host today. Hey, Pavo. Hey, how's it going? So we're going to talk about Berlin first, actually, and we're going to start with our tour. What are some of the places or things you'd want to show visitors to the city if we were in town? Well, we don't have many skyscrapers to show, so we would probably do something <laughs> slightly, slightly different. I mean, I would probably just give a tour here, um, just outside, outside my place where where I live, um, uh, where you have a pretty nice mix of of amenities. Um, you have the the little canal and all the uh, folks sitting actually alongside the banks and uh, having a beer and a nice conversation, a chat. I mean, it's the kind of vibrant urban environment that uh, planners always uh, strive to create, but usually um, uh, never, never succeed. So. Mm. Um, this is where I would start. I mean, just, this is, I think, Berlin at its best. Yeah, and before we get into the third dimension of uh, cities, uh, Gabriel, I was hoping you could give our listeners an overview a bit of this uh, this awesome Berlin paper you have, I think kind of one of the most epic natural experiments. I mean, unfortunate, of course, in, in many ways, but I think since you've done a lot of thinking about the horizontal dimension of, of cities to some extent or the kind of view from space, um, I think that would be super interesting for our, our listeners. 
Yeah, so the, the evidence from the Berlin Wall, yeah, that's, that's maybe the, the, the best-known paper that I've ever written. So, so what, what's so special about the paper? I think, I mean, the, it all starts with the, with the question that is maybe the most popular question in urban economics, which is, why do cities exist? I mean, that's, that's maybe the first question I always ask my students in, mm -hmm. in an urban economics class. I mean, it seems so tempting um, to just live kind of spread out uh, somewhere in the countryside where you can have a lot of space. But instead, we all crowd into cities. And um, there must be a reason for that, right? And the, the century-old answer, I think, is uh, agglomeration economies. The idea that if you, if you kind of um, live together, right, you work together, you're going to be more productive. Maybe it's also more fun, just like, like I said, right? I mean, if you go outside <laughs> the house here, yeah, I mean, having a lot of people, high density also yes. um, is a lot of fun. But the classic, like the classic answer, <laughs> exactly, people like people. But the classic answer is that we, that we are more productive, right? Now, that makes total sense, right? I mean, you have the flow of, of information, knowledge, and you, you have the, 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 the match in the labor market. You find a job that, that really gives you your best productivity. Um, that sounds all cool, but empirically kind of showing that, right? I mean, this causal effect from density on productivity, something that's not, not so easily done um, because there's always this reverse causality in the air. I mean, you could always argue, think about Manhattan, right? I mean, you have a wonderful natural harbor, right? Maybe Manhattan is just fundamentally very productive, right? Because it's very productive, you have high wages, and because of that, people come to Manhattan. So it's not about density that makes Manhattan uh, uh, very productive. It could also be just the fundamentals. So how can you, how can you prove this, this, this kind of story in urban economics that density really makes um, places more productive? Well, you need some exogenous shock, a natural experiment, as you said, Pravo, right? Um, something that kind of exogenously uh, changes exposure to density, and you don't find that that often. And clearly, this is where the, the Berlin Wall uh, comes, to, comes to play a role, right? I mean, so the, the idea in the paper is that you look at West Berlin, um, and then suddenly you have the wall, the wall comes up. And that uh, world kind of uh, isolates uh, some areas in West Berlin close to the historic central business district from the historic city center. And if you believe in the idea that, I mean, there are all these spillovers in the air and they kind of um, spread from the CBD onto nearby areas, you would expect that actually those areas, which are now kind of insulated from those spillovers, they would lose productivity. Okay. Mm -hmm. And um, um, yeah, that's the paper in a nutshell, really. We show that. I mean, so these places, I mean, uh, close to the CBD in West Berlin, they were super productive, extremely high rents. Wall uh, goes up. I mean, all of that is lost. And when the wall um, uh, comes down, I mean, the reverse happens. And this is really um, the story that we tell in the paper that shows quite convincingly that um, density um, has a causal effect on, on uh, productivity. Okay. But I mean, the, the, the wall aside, I should also say that, I mean, in order to kind of uh, show this, this formally and also to kind of quantify the effects, we built this quantitative spatial model, right, which is kind of a, a contribution in its own right. And I, I think um, probably the paper by now has been more impactful actually for the model than just for the empirical result that um, density matters, I would say. The article we're discussing in more depth today is in the Journal of Urban Economics. It's titled The Economics of Skyscrapers, A Synthesis and your co-author on it is Jason Barr. In this article, you've developed a model here as well that, if I can simplify things a bit, is exploring what conditions lead to the development of skyscrapers and how they influence urbanization in cities, and also how restrictions on skyscrapers, especially height limits, can alter or redirect the processes of urbanization. My observation kind of coming into this as someone who follows housing discourse is that skyscrapers can be surprisingly polarizing, especially for how little of the built environment they actually account for. For some people, they represent a sort of pinnacle of urbanization uh, and efficiency and even beauty. 
And for others, they're sort of monuments to individual ego and urban inequality. And, you know, my intuition is that there's some truth to both of these views. At least that's how I, you know, kind of came into this paper feeling. But before we get into the actual content of the article, I'd be curious to hear just what drew you to this topic. Why should we care about skyscrapers as a distinct building type in our cities? I think I take a more positive view, positive in the sense that I that I care about the whys, right? And not so much about much about whether skyscrapers are good or good or bad. I mean, I think to me, I mean, the fascinating thing is really that I mean, if you look into the history of cities, right? I mean, you have this kind of evident trend into the third dimension. I mean, uh, uh, the vertical growth. I mean, is just kind of happening at a totally unprecedented rate. And at the same time, for uh, I can't even really say why. I mean, urban economics research has long been sticking, as Pavel said, right, I mean, to horizontal land use uh, pattern, right? I mean, we see um, cities are vert- growing vertically, but we still kind of take the look from outer space on, on cities. And we also do that in the Berlin Wallpaper, right? And the Berlin Wallpaper is as nice as the model is, right? But there's no explicit uh, treatment of, of height, actually, in that in that model, right? And I thought, I mean, okay, I mean, this is this is kind of a striking uh, dis- disconnect. And um, uh, obviously, you want to make sure that the history of thought and urban economics somehow keeps keeps up with the history of cities. And um, uh, uh, me and also a couple of other people have recently started to look into uh, the vertical dimension. We now know a little bit about how rents change within buildings as you move to higher floors. We start to have some notion of how construction costs increase as you build taller. So I thought that maybe now is a good time to try to bring together actually what we know about the economics of skyscrapers in one paper and also kind of give a little bit of research directions so that uh, the field has some suggestions on, on, on where we could be going. Mm -hmm. And your model in this article is kind of an elaboration of previous models of spatial equilibrium within cities, which might be a phrase that's familiar to some people who have gone to urban planning school recently, but not many other people. So as simply and jargon-free as possible, could you just give us an explanation of what a spatial equilibrium model is and what these kinds of models predict about the form that cities take and what your model is adding um, with its emphasis on skyscrapers. Uh, So the the spatial equilibrium is is a helpful concept that is based on the idea that uh, firms and and workers are indifferent between locations. So basically, you want to call a situation an equilibrium if nobody has an incentive to move from one place to another. Mm-hmm. So how does that how does that work? I mean, how is that possible? Well, the idea is that of course you have some some places in in the city which are more attractive than others, okay. But what's going to happen in this equilibrium in this situation um, is that the rent at these different places is going to adjust to offset for all the benefits that you get from one location. Of course, you want to be in the city center because you have a shorter commute, but at the same time, you're going to pay a higher rent. And um, uh, if you take into account both factors, you're kind of indifferent. Okay, this is what we call a, a spatial equilibrium. And then we, we start from that and we go modeling the city. We think about different um, uh, economic agents. I mean, most typically, we think about firms and residents, right? And um, then you're going to have different factors that um, for which different uh, agents like firms and, and residents have a different willingness to pay. I mean, typically, we assume that firms, they derive a real big benefit from being in a city center. Okay, mm-hmm. so they're going to kind of outbid residents from the city center. So you get a kind of horizontal land use pattern with firms in the city center and residents in the suburbs. Okay. You can become more sophisticated like what we do in this model. We do a general equilibrium model, so we also take into account the labor market. So it's not just about um, uh, 
uh, are you indifferent between locations within the city? It's also the question, um, uh, when are you indifferent between being in the city or living outside the city? That's going to depend on the real wage. Okay? And um, uh, so you can also learn something about uh, city size. And then you can incorporate the third dimension, which is what we really do here as a novel contribution um, uh, to this literature. We start thinking very explicitly about, okay, what are the costs and returns to height? Okay, and we make that use specific, and and this is um, this is important as it turns out. So basically, you you have a benefit from being high up in the building. Okay, you get a nicer view, you pay a higher rent. Okay, at the same time, you, you you build a taller building, it's going to be more expensive. Okay. Now, the rate at which these costs and benefits change, they, they can be use-specific. Okay? It can be more, more expensive to build a tall residential building than a tall uh, commercial tower. And that is something which literature has completely ignored. This then has also some implications for the horizontal land use pattern. Okay? So if it's very difficult to build tall residential buildings, then that's an additional force why we see commercial land use in city centers where you have um, extremely high land rents. That's something which is completely absent in the standard urban model, but we kind of feed that in um, into this otherwise fairly canonical general equilibrium framework. So that's that's basically the contribution, I would say. Yeah, and we'll, we'll come back to that difference between the commercial and the residential and how this influences the, the horizontal as well as the vertical. But we should, I think, start by being clear on how we're defining skyscrapers, because what people consider a skyscraper certainly varies a lot from place to place. In parts of New York or Hong Kong, someone might not consider a 40-story tower a skyscraper. Uh, but there are people here in LA who might refer to a five-story building as a skyscraper, if not referring to it as something much worse. For this paper, though, you are using 150 meters or taller as your threshold, which is about 500 feet. What were your reasons for picking that height? And is there anything we should know up front about how that might bias some of your findings and your insights in this paper? Uh, it's a good question, right? I mean, I think there is a theoretical and, and empirical dimension here. So for the model, I mean, that, that height threshold really doesn't matter. So the model generates a full distribution of building heights. So you have, uh, you have many, many locations in the city. They have different rents and some places have very high rents and there you get a lot of uh, tall buildings. And then you have some places where rents are very low and you get short buildings. And in between, you get a full distribution. Okay. And um, the model can tell you anything about any high threshold or any kind of measure of vertical size. Empirically, you want to make your life easier and just kind of focus um, on, on some measure of vertical size. We pick 150 meters because my co-author Jason tells me that this is fairly canonical in the literature. But mm. to be honest, it doesn't matter so much, right? I mean, you can you can now go and say, okay, look, I mean, let's put the cutoff at 100 meters. Let's do it at 150 meters. You can actually count the total height of all the tall buildings in the city. You can also do something like I just measure the height of the tallest building, right? There are many, many ways of how you can measure vertical size, but it turns out that they are all super correlated. So frankly, I have a hard time thinking about how really this definition could be particularly influential for any of the conclusions that we draw on this paper. I think it's just kind of a, a one way of many ways of, of measuring vertical size. Yeah, it's interesting that that kind of incrementalism that you emphasize throughout the paper in terms of height, I think probably would apply to kind of people's perceptions as well, right? Because once you have, you know, a city that's mostly four-story buildings, and then you get a one 10-story building, then people think, ah, skyscraper. But, you know, it's all just kind of conditional on people's perception of normal, I guess. 
Yeah, and this also happens. I mean, it's it's also generational specific, right? I mean, what people perceived as being a tall building, right? right? I mean, um, uh, that that's very different, actually. Uh, if you if you zoom back in, in in history, yeah. And your article actually has a a bunch of cool history and stats on the evolution of skyscrapers over time, really all across the world. Could you sketch out some of that history for us, especially uh, since the turn of the 20th century? What were some of the eras of skyscraper construction and what technological innovations made each of those eras possible? Well, I think it's uh, the, the necessary condition for something like a skyscraper uh, to emerge. Basically, I mean, um, that was the elevator and the steel frame, right? I mean, that actually allows you for the first time to really move beyond um, uh, 10, 10 uh, floors or something and um, uh, start having really uh, tall buildings. So I think it's it's actually no surprise that somewhere around that time, right, we usually kind of uh, uh, record the birth of the skyscraper, although it's actually surprisingly controversial, actually, which which the first skyscraper building actually was. I mean, Jason could, could elaborate on that for, for ages. But roughly around the turn of the century, I mean, we, we had the first sky skyscrapers because of these technological innovations, um, then people pushed um, uh, uh, the margins as, as much as they could during the kind of uh, famous skyscraper race during the 1920s. Then you had the Great Depression, and then for some time, not so much happened. And then as far as I understand, you had the 1960s when um, structural engineers started to use mainframe computing. I think that was a big game changer. Now suddenly you could kind of start building really tall structures in a much more more efficient way. I mean, by efficient way, I mean you use a lot less material. Therefore, for the building gets lighter that allows you to go much taller you can withstand these kind of collateral wind loads which seem to be the big challenge in, in building tall buildings um, uh, in a, in a uh, efficient fashion and since then I mean the technological process hasn't come to an end I mean maybe it's a little bit more incremental but it's absolutely steady so we see um, more and more uh, skyscrapers uh, uh, at ever greater heights uh, popping up all over the world and I don't think this is a development that is coming to an end. Uh, Jason tells me that at some point we're going to have elevators um, uh, that are magnetic. They don't need cables anymore. And that can actually uh, allow skyscrapers to, to uh, go to 1,000 meters or even a, a mile or something, right? So that's part, one part of the story. I think it's really important to think about a supply side here. But it's, of course, just one side of the story, right? I mean, to, to build a skyscraper, it's not just um, a, a question about the cost. It's also a question about the revenues. Um, you mm -hmm. need um, high rents, right? That's that's the key ingredient here. You need really high rents, uh, rents to, to finance these uh, tall buildings. And you're going to get these high rents in environments where you have relatively high incomes and uh, growing urbanization. Okay? And I think this explains why you first had the skyscrapers in the US okay? around the turn of the century. I mean, the US was a relatively rich country. Um, cities were urbanizing fast. This creates a demand pressure for skyscrapers to emerge. But, um, of course, since then, the gravity of development has shifted a little bit, right? I mean, we have now a lot more um, development in the developing world, in particular in Asia. Um, uh, so you have these mega cities, in particular in China, um, uh, where you get this combination of relatively high incomes and uh, fast urbanization, which are basically this kind of second ingredient besides technology that facilitates um, uh, vertical growth. Yeah. So um, I think that's probably the history of skyscrapers in a nutshell. Yeah, I thought it was very interesting, the kind of if you look at that graph you have in the paper about kind of the appearance of completion, you know, completions by year over the last hundred years or so, um, up till about 2000, it seems like urban population growth is exceeding skyscraper production. But then after 2000, skyscraper production really takes off. And I guess that is probably the 
the the importance of GDP in in producing these things rather than just large cities. Yeah, I agree. It's actually it's GDP that is important. Interestingly, it's also uh, GDP growth. So right. if you if you run a simple simple horse race and you you want to just kind of check um, what is the stronger predictor of uh, vertical growth? I mean, it used to be uh, uh, GDP in levels used to be very important, but over time right. GDP growth actually uh, became more important. Yeah, yeah so absolutely. I mean, that, that forward, forward looking uh, <laughs> forward looking speculative developments that and optimism. Of... Yeah, yeah. 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 Well, but it makes sense. Right, I mean, you, you, um, uh, if you think about the durability of this capital stock, right? I mean, you're building a skyscraper yeah. that is going to last, I mean, how long? 100 years, easily, right? So, I mean, you got to think about the future. And I, I think we can uh, just summarize quickly, but I think the concentration of skyscrapers is really interesting too. I was pretty surprised to learn that 50% of the world's skyscrapers, at least by this definition, are in just 17 cities. I know there are a bunch of reasons for this, and we'll probably get into some of them, but. Could you give us a sense for why so many of the world's skyscrapers are found in just a few places? Uh, one stat just to pull out here, uh, you know, just in terms of the locations, is that 16 of the 20 cities with the most skyscrapers are in East, East Asia, kind of as you hinted at, and just three now are in North America in New York, Chicago, and Toronto. Toronto is kind of a, a surprise to me as well. Yes, I think... Um, I think the, the, the fundamental reason why you see skyscrapers in relatively few cities is that they are very expensive. And again, what you really need as a necessary condition to build them is you need high rents. And high rents, we know that, I mean, they basically emerge in cities that are large and economically prosperous. And that kind of shrinks the, the set of candidate cities actually sure. um, uh, uh, quite a lot. You then have a bunch of cities, particularly in Europe, where um, maybe skyscrapers would be economically viable, but the planners don't like them. So you get these these uh, height constraints and basically you ban skyscrapers. I mean, that plays a big role. So you, you shrink the set even even further. And um, I think what's going on in China is there, you, you have the opposite. You actually have planners who like skyscrapers. And um, uh, what, what, what they do, I mean, from my limited understanding of the institutional context is that they, that they view the, the skyscraper as a potential uh, catalyst for local economic development, which is not crazy if you think about uh, the idea of uh, agglomeration spillovers, right? I mean, you say you put a bunch of productive people into an area, right? If you believe in the idea that there are spillovers, so maybe that can have a local impact. So what they, what they end up doing eventually is to um, heavily subsidize these skyscrapers through um, cheap land leases. Okay. So you, mm. you see probably um, the opposite of Europe. In Europe, you see fewer skyscrapers that you would normally get. And in China, you, China, you see more skyscrapers that you would um, obtain under free market provision because the land for skyscrapers is subsidized. And I think to some extent, this, this explains this, this Asian-Chinese bias in, 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 in skyscraper development these days. Although, of course, we also need to acknowledge that Chinese big cities, they just tend to be very large, right? So, um, right, uh, sure. To some extent, it's also natural that we see many skyscrapers there. Yeah, I mean, I think it's kind of this uh, regulatory manifestation of, of what some people might think about as culture, right? And talk about like, you know, it's just not, we don't like living in high buildings. I mean, you hear that a lot in Latin America, you know, kind of we prefer living in this manner, but then, you know, maybe the regulations follow that and that's actually what's what's shaping things. I wonder one thing that, that I didn't see come up was, or maybe not in, in these words, but is kind of the coordination costs and kind of risk implied for kind of this projects of this size, right? So you might imagine countries with kind of weaker institutions or property rights, it might be harder to get get one of these things, or kind of you, you'd be less interested in investing in one of these things 
you know, than in another context, even if the GDP was growing rapidly. Yeah, I think it's an interesting thought. I mean, it makes theoretical sense, but I, I can't remember having come across any evidence that would uh, substantiate or reject that. So I think that's probably a, a good area for, for future research. Because yeah. also, if you think about like pre, like a lot of the financing of, of real estate projects of this size have pre-sales as like an important part of, of revenue streams. And if you think about suburban developments with pre-sales, well, you develop half of it and then people are living in that, and then the, the the purchase of those homes finances the second half. You know, it's harder to see under construction but occupied skyscrapers, right? So that kind of model I don't think would work as well. Yeah, I agree, and, and there, there are also limits. I mean, to take the canonical model to developing world cities in which you have informal land markets. I mean, an informal land market and right. skyscraper development that doesn't go very well, precisely for the reasons that you just outlined. Although there is this famous famous one in Venezuela, right? Torre de David. It got it got built half built and then occupied by uh, informally. It's pretty fast. <laughs> we we do always like to recognize a paper that put a lot of work into the data collection or, or analysis here, and this one certainly qualifies. There was a ton of data you collected on skyscrapers all over the world. Could you just say a little bit about what that process looked like? What sources of data you're drawing from uh, for this paper? And maybe anything interesting that, that came out of that process? Yeah, I mean, that's true. I mean, we use a, we use a lot of data in this paper. Although, to be, to be fair, actually, um, uh, quite, quite a bit of the data that we use, uh, Jason and I, in independent uh, previous research, we already had, had collected. I mean, for instance, I had used mm -hmm. this Empowerist database. Um, before the Empowerist database, I think it's considered to be the most comprehensive database on, on skyscrapers. It tells you exactly the location of skyscrapers, the height, I mean, the date of construction, sometimes even the construction cost. I, I had used that in the previous project. Also, the land values that we collected for Chicago. I mean, that was a major thing, right? I mean, for 150 years, digitizing historic maps that give you exactly the block level, the land values. I mean, that took us ages and armies of RAs, um, to help us. And, and this um, was the one with, uh, with Dan McMillan, is that that paper? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So we used that for the for the tall buildings, uh, uh, the other tall buildings paper. Um, Jason had done um, similar research for New York. Um, that came in very handy. So we could do these kind of uh, comparisons of, of Chicago and uh, New York. We also collected new data for, for this paper. And I think the, the coolest data we collected, I think, is the one on the Empire State Building. Um, so at some point, uh, Jason uh, went to the archives in Delaware. And I think he spent uh, a couple of days really taking hundreds of photos of all these historic files um, uh, where, you, where you could um, and, uh, just have these records on the historic balance sheets and the, and the conversations um, uh, that the, the owners of the buildings had with the authorities, I mean, to get planning permission and and later on during the Great Depression, I mean, they were complaining a lot because the building was fairly empty and they were at the uh, risk of bankruptcy. At least that's what they claimed. And um, uh, they, they wanted to lobby for tax discounts, uh, which kind of was really nice to, 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 to read into it. And, and then also something which was fascinating is to see actually in these balance sheets how then quickly, right? I mean, even I think even while they were still, still arguing for a tax discount, Already, I mean, the um, rents kind of skyrocketed, the vacancy rates dropped, and the building became super profitable. Of course, the owners wouldn't talk about that, right? And um, uh, uh, most of the economic historians uh, working in that area, they, they actually missed that, right? And this is why, why this, this building still has this, this nickname of being the empty state building, whereas actually this was just an issue for a couple of years, and for most of its lifetime, the mm -hmm. building was super profitable, easily um, uh, a better stock market in terms of net returns. So we, we brought to light, I think, um, a kind 
kind of nice piece of urban history, which is uh, which felt exciting. Um, that doesn't usually happen in my uh, life as an urban economist, where I mostly kind of sit down with a piece of paper and a pencil to do some boring math or some programming, right? Um, so yeah, that was uh, cool. <laughs> Yeah, since you brought that up, let's let's jump ahead to that conversation about, you know, the profits of these buildings. I, I mentioned already there's this idea that skyscrapers have more to do with the, the egos of their owners or developers sometimes than actual profit motives or profit maximization anyway. I'm thinking of how people have looked to surges in skyscraper construction as a sign of irrational exuberance in the market and maybe a signal that a bubble is about to pop sort of a like, like record-breaking skyscrapers are almost a canary in the coal mine for an overheated or, or somehow at-risk economy. What this is all really getting at is the question of whether it makes financial sense to build buildings at these heights. And I read the article as basically saying that, yes, the these projects are pretty profitable, at least the ones you looked at in detail. It's not necessarily all about ego, whatever the cost. Could you explain how you tried to answer that question and what you found, like a little more detail, especially on the, the Empire State Building, but also your analysis of second and third tallest buildings and these other approaches that you took? Yeah, I mean, let me just kind of quickly mention, I mean, you, you brought up this point about skyscrapers predicting bubbles. I think um, the work by mm -hmm. Jason um, uh, suggests that actually this doesn't work, right? I think that you can actually, mm -hmm. economy predicts skyscrapers but skyscrapers actually but, but there are a few really notable anecdotes suggesting it does well i mean anecdotes are not yeah well okay there's always a, there's always a difference between an anecdote and systematic evidence i'm not going to contest your your anecdote but i think jason would, would claim and i'm just passing this on right i mean this is not my research but he would claim that actually this idea that you can predict the bubble um uh, through skyscrapers that doesn't work i mean but this is this is um what what he that'd be did. a great investment strategy if it if it did though yeah, I mean, we, we all want to be able to predict <laughs> bubbles, right? I mean, uh, <laughs> when they happen and when they burst, I agree. More generally, I think, I mean, I came to convince myself um, uh, through the work in this project that probably um, uh, this idea of, of, of insane heights being driven by uh, egomaniacs, that does probably not have a lot of support, right? I mean, I wouldn't claim that there is no building in the world which seems economically unfeasible okay i mean there are a couple of cities um, where you find that the tallest building is a lot taller than the second tallest building and you kind of wonder why right so maybe mm -hmm. you have reason to be a little bit suspicious there although you need to be careful because especially if you're in a touristy city and you have an observation deck i mean the revenues that you get from those observation decks that can be massive i mean we saw that actually in the empire state building that can completely skew the um the uh, uh, the math. I think, I mean, the, at some point, it's just, it really makes a difference. So I, I would even be careful with challenging. And there's probably, I'm, I'm just, I'm just thinking of this now, but there's probably also, you know, we've got in many respects, a sort of winner take all economy, especially you see this with like social media where it's like, whoever, whoever wins takes it all and is worth many billions of dollars and everyone else is just kind of nothing. In the case of like observation decks also, it seems like if you're the the tallest or the most attractive in some way, you're going to draw everyone and anyone who's second, third, fourth is just kind of, you're maybe getting some people, but just nowhere near uh, the same level as the Absolutely. 
Yeah, absolutely. So, so even if you see something as suspicious as the Burj Khalifa in in, uh, in Dubai, right? You, you could argue that maybe even that makes sense. But but this situation, right? I mean, uh, that you see in Dubai is is the huge exception, right? I mean, if you if you look at um, as we did, right? I mean, systematically across all cities that adopted the skyscraper technology, what you find is that usually the second tallest building is pretty similar in height to the tallest building, and the third tallest building basically is actually identical in terms of height to the second tallest building. And I just don't think this is a coincidence, right? I mean, this is, of course, I mean, the result in, in general that people um, uh, do quite careful calculations about the profit-maximizing building height because they have, a, have an interest in maximizing their profits and they come to similar conclusions because they are driven by, by fundamentals. And coming back to the Empire State Building, I mean, this is, um, I think the literature treats it as maybe the uh, most overly ambitious uh, building in history. I mean, it has this unbeaten track record of being the tallest building in the world for 40 years, which just really shows, I mean, how out of proportion it seemingly was when it was um, was constructed and therefore all these nicknames about the empty state buildings. But really, I mean, as I told you, right, I mean, if you go through the balance sheets, I mean, you see this is all just based on a on a myth that emerged during the uh, a Great uh, Depression. I mean, and hey, you build this tall building, right? Now comes the Great Depression. Of course, I mean, you're going to have a problem filling that building. I mean, that's not a surprise. But soon mm. soon after that, actually, you see that the, the stats look super healthy, right? And um, uh, and over the lifetime, I mean, the, the net return on investment was was great. And um, also, you have some, some people from the construction industry um, uh, that did uh, independent uh, calculations on the optimal building height in Manhattan. And they come up actually with a size that is not so different from the Empire State Building. So I guess the point I'm trying to make here, if even this kind of icon, right, of uh, uh, of uh, ego-driven uh, skyscraper development that emerged from the sky, from the competition with the Chrysler building, right? I mean, if even that building was profitable, right? I mean, I have a little bit of a hard time thinking about mm. many buildings in um, the world that were that were deliberately constructed as as loss makers, right, just to satisfy some some ego. Also, because these these things are just so expensive, right? I mean, if you talk about really tall buildings today, I mean, you're talking about buildings Billion dollar amounts, right? I mean, you need to be really, really rich, right, to afford <laughs> huge losses on, on such investments. So I think it's, I think that the the story is a little bit overstated, right? I would say. One thing you hear on this a lot in in Latin, well, in Mexico at least, probably in other parts of Latin America, is that they're they're money laundering operations, right? So you do see a few in in northern Mexico. There's a bunch of I have some some former students that are working on research on verticalization, as they call it, in in northern Mexico, where there's cities that you know they haven't had a building over 15 stories ever, and now they have a handful of 40 story residential towers and stuff, and they they connect it to money laundering. But I guess. In the spirit of average effects or average relationships, this is probably not a global global phenomenon and maybe not even true. Yeah, I mean, if you, if you do the math, I mean, you can easily burn a lot of money um, uh, if you build too tall, <laughs> right? So I can see how money laundering would actually work very efficiently. I cannot comment actually on how widespread the phenomenon is. I mean, it's it's cool, 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 cool insight. I didn't, I wasn't aware of that actually. It makes sense, but I really don't know how uh, how generalizable that that phenomenon is. Right. I mean, and. Just thinking about the Empire State Building in particular and how it was the tallest building in the world for 40 years, that kind of strikes me as maybe just like a historical quirk too, where, you know, it, it was finished at the beginning of the Great Depression, so no one's going to be coming after. And then you got a war, and then you got suburbanization in the U.S., where it's just right. like dispersing demand constantly away from city centers and sort of, you know, it was our policies that had nothing to do with skyscrapers that sort of uh, drew people out of cities and presumably 
you know, brought down the land rent. So that it didn't really make sense to build like that again for a long time. Especially for the wealthy. Yeah, yeah. So let's get into this economic model. This is central to your paper, this model of a city and the urban economics that help shape it. And you make the point that barring restrictions like height limits, developers will keep increasing the height of their buildings so long as the increased rents they get from adding floors is larger than the increase to construction costs. This seems like a a good time to talk about construction costs, and I think there are two important points here, uh, at least two. The first is that as you build taller, the cost of building increases, and it's not just that it costs money to add each additional floor of a building, which is obvious, but that adding another floor often makes every floor below it a little more expensive to build. I'll get to the second point in a moment here, but let's just hold on that observation first. Could you explain why that's the case and what your model and other data tells us about how big of an effect that is? Yeah, and to, to, I mean, so we we established in in, uh, in this paper, but also in the previous work with Dan McMillan, I mean that this relationship exists empirically for for some reason. Actually, um, uh, engineers they they don't work empirically, so they don't establish these relationships in the data, but they do this kind of um, based on engineering kind of construction uh, mathematics. Um, I, I I feel quite confident to talk about um, uh, the magnitude of the effect. Um, uh, you want to take my. Uh, uh, my elaborations on the origins of this effect with a pinch of salt, right? Because I'm not a structural engineer. But what I understand is that, of course, there are a couple of reasons that account for that. I mean, first of all, you need a lot more sophisticated structural engineering, right? When you build taller. So you need to make sure that you um, ensure the structural integrity of the building. That means you need better materials, right? I mean, you need a, a lot more sophisticated yeah, engineering in general. Um, you also have the issue of foundations, right? I mean, the taller you build, I mean, the deeper you want to go with your foundations and you have the complicated mm-hmm. issue with the bedrock, right? I mean, you want to have the bedrock at some depth if you're going to go deep, but then at the same time, you also don't want to have the bedrock too near to the surface because then you have to blast away, right? That all gets more complicated if the building um, uh, gets taller. And then the, um, the the third factor for which we also have support in our data is that you lose a lot of net floor space as you build tall, right? The taller you go, the more space you're going to dedicate to elevators and other facilities, that means that the ratio of net floor space over gross floor space falls significantly. And I think all these three things together, they um, explain why it um, gets more expensive in per unit terms when you when you build taller. Now to, to the magnitude, um, uh, I think it's fair to say that, 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 that the cost of height increases at an increasing rate, right? I mean, there's, there's not really a constant elasticity here, right, which complicates things a little bit. Say you go from 10 to 20 floors, uh, I'd say, I mean, you have to live with an increase in construction cost per unit, maybe of 25% or something. You go from 250 meters to 500 meters, right? I mean, that can easily double the cost in terms of per unit construction costs, right? So this this effect really kind of uh, builds up um, uh, exponentially. Um, I suspect there are a lot of more kind of uh, uh, complex issues here around thresholds and so on and so forth. Um, uh, and I think we need a lot more research, actually, to understand completely the shape of this this construction uh, uh, cost function. That said, I find it still quite astonishing that um, uh, uh, the good old rule of thumb, according to which um, a building cost in terms of per units increases by about 2% for each additional floor, 
that rule of thumb actually has surprisingly strong support on the data. It's an imperfect approximation, of course, right? But actually, mm. it's quite a decent approximation. So um, that I found interesting. And the second point here that I have in mind is the discontinuous relationship between construction costs and height. And this isn't really explored in your article, and I think for good reason, because it's mostly, as I understand it, applicable to buildings more in the 10 story range and below LA skyscrapers not yeah yeah LA skyscrapers exactly yeah I think it's pretty intuitive that as you build taller the construction cost per square foot or per square meter does go up you know as you said you have to invest more in structural materials and reinforcement foundation maybe you have to dig your deeper deeper hole uh there's parking your elevators and other circulation get more complex take up more space all those costs get spread across the whole building but the increase isn't necessarily linear for every single floor. So you may not have a consistent 2% increase per square foot in construction costs as you step up from five to six to seven to eight to nine stories. Instead, and, and I'm just making up numbers here to illustrate, uh, so don't take these too seriously, costs may go up 2% when you add the sixth floor and then 2% more when you add the seventh floor. This is per square foot again. But when you get to the eighth floor, they might go up 30% or 50%. And the reason is building code requirements. Buildings between three and five stories might have very similar construction costs per square foot because they're structurally all wood. And I guess I should clarify, I'm thinking in the US context here, it's gonna be different in other countries. But then the costs go up for the sixth and seventh floors because those additional levels have to be built out of concrete, or at least the, the, the main structure does. And then everything gets way more expensive when you hit floor eight or nine, because now you're building the whole structural core out of concrete or steel. One important consequence of that big jump is that once you've crossed the threshold into steel or concrete construction, you often, you might as well go for 20 or 50 or hundred stories rather than just sticking around nine or 10. Uh, so again, 10, 20 story buildings, these aren't the focus of your article, so it's not an oversight that is not discussed there, but it does seem like useful context, and I'm curious to hear your thoughts on how this relates, if at all, to um, the really big 150-meter and taller skyscrapers. Are there other kinds of thresholds you've come across, maybe, that tall buildings can hit that end up making the whole thing substantially more expensive, or is this more of a kind of mid-rise phenomenon? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm not not, not so sure. I mean, the, the problem with the data is that it's relatively sparse. So it's not like in the data that we have, every skyscraper actually has the construction cost recorded. So we, mm -hmm. we work with um, uh, limited data, which unfortunately isn't really suitable to really get into the non-linearities and particular discontinuities of the construction cost function. So I can't tell you too much about that. I mean, talking to architects and engineers, I mean, I hear that even for especially residential tall buildings, you could have these discontinuities because at certain heights, I mean, then then you have to change the way you kind of um, uh, do the pipes and all the plumbing and the stuff, right? Mm. So um, it seems like you, you're gonna, gonna have this combination. What, what you're describing is a phenomenon where you 
you go beyond a certain height and then suddenly you incur a fixed cost and then for some floors you can spread that fixed cost uh, across the floor so, so, so the, the average cost goes down before it goes up again right this could right, happen right. Uh, multiple times and um, somehow in my mind I, I see a smart kid coming up with a, a job market paper <laughs> exploiting <laughs> these discontinuities in the supply of floor space to somehow estimate the, the slope of the local demand uh, curve right and preference heterogeneity and all these parameters we need in the quantitative spatial models these days um, the uh, necessary condition to do that will be to find better data sets than, than we have right one other thing to note is that your model finds that commercial skyscrapers make the most sense financially within the innermost core of the city where land prices are highest but then once you get a little ways out from the core residential towers can actually earn a, a better return at first, this kind of surprised me because the data you have say that rents generally go up faster as you move up a residential building compared to a commercial building. But I'm guessing, I think it's my, my understanding that the reason commercial skyscrapers are still preferable, especially in the core, is because it's cheaper to keep going taller. So to say that another way, yes, rents go up faster as you move up each floor of a residential skyscraper. But construction costs also go up faster for residential buildings as they add height. What really matters is the gap between how quickly rents go up and how quickly costs go up as you go taller. And that gap is often bigger for commercial buildings. So it makes sense to build them taller. So first, just tell me if that's a fair interpretation of the data that, you, that you've uh, pulled from. And then tell me what I'm missing from that explanation, because I know it's glossing over a lot of nuance in this interplay between construction costs and rents and, and also land prices, which I haven't really uh, talked about here. Yeah, I think you're pretty pretty spot on. Um, so the way to think about that, I mean, uh, from a perspective of a developer, is you need to figure out the net cost of height, right? I mean, you, you, call, you take into mm -hmm. account the returns to height, the cost of height, and then um, the net cost of height really um, uh, is what you should be concerned about. And then, I mean, if you if you trust, I mean, the preliminary results that we have, I mean, they are the first of its kind. We need still need to build an evidence base, but so far it seems uh, quite unambiguously, I would say, that um, the net cost of uh, height is larger for a residential building. And this is exactly as you said, right? Because just kind of um, the, the engineering of a, of a tall residential tower is more complicated. Um, uh, it's the thing about the, uh, the ground floor area. You can have these huge floor plate areas for commercial towers and put everybody on a huge trading floor, right? I mean, that doesn't work for residential towers. I mean, this makes it a lot more complicated. A couple of other things. So this um, makes uh, uh, always building a tall residential tower a little bit harder. Um, I think you also need to keep in mind that uh, you could totally abstract from that and you would still get the land use pattern with uh, commercial land use in the center simply because firms pay a greater premium for being in the city center. Also, um, workers consume less space at work than at home. So overall, mm -hmm. the expenditure share on um, a floor space is lower for a firm than for a household. That makes it easier for a firm to afford high rent. So all of that pushes um, uh, offices already in the city center. But then um, your logic exactly kicks in, right? And on top of that, you have the lower net cost of height for commercial uh, offices. And that creates an additional comparative advantage for offices in the city center and the way to think about it is that this makes the central business district a little bit bigger than it would otherwise uh, uh, be 
And it also gives kind of rise to these height discontinuities that we see actually um, uh, for the first time in our model. So the model would predict that actually as you go from the central business district to the residential area, you're going to see a sudden jump in height, which I think you do see in real world cities, right? You often see these CBDs standing out in terms of tall mm -hmm. buildings, right? And being surrounding by relatively flat um, uh, residential buildings. Yeah. It's not just a, a smooth gradient up to the tallest exactly. building. Yeah. yeah. You mentioned how office workers tend to use less space. And I think that's sort of a, an interesting observation in part because it's kind of an extension of how we think about like multifamily housing and how you're sharing land between a larger number of people. And so office is kind of taking that another level where instead of sharing, you know, having a bunch of uh, housing units and maybe one person per 400 square feet, 300 square feet in an office is maybe one person per 100 square feet. I think that at least used to be the, the standard. So you, you kind of talked about the difference in, in building heights and your data does show really large differences in building heights, even among skyscrapers within a given city, even for buildings just a few blocks away from each other. I know there's not a, a single answer to this, but why don't we see the same homogeneity in design and height for buildings, say over 20 stories or over 150 meters tall, as we do for like modern six and seven story mid-rise apartment buildings, for example. Shouldn't there be some profit maximizing design or height that's proliferated and at least somewhat taken over the market by now? Why haven't we seen anything like that? Yeah, I mean, this is uh, this is an interesting question. I mean, in the paper, we talk about what we call the fuzzy height gradient. So the fact that you see these these buildings of uh, very, very different heights side by side within the city, and you kind of wonder um, how this comes about. And I think there are a couple of explanations which um, are not mutually exclusive. Um, one of the things that I found interesting when I, when I played around with the model um, uh, uh, was that I need relatively little variation in economic fundamentals and also rents to rationalize large differences in building heights. So basically what I did is I said, okay, look, I mean, I take Chicago, right? I, I have the real world kind of height profile of Chicago. And I try to, to explain that purely through differences in terms of uh, local amenities. Okay? Mm -hmm. So you would have something like a subway, for instance, in one location or a view on Chicago River. Because of that, you would get, let's say, 5% higher floor space rents. And that would incentivize the developer to um, uh, develop taller. And one of the interesting things that comes out of the, the, the model under the fairly canonical parameterization is that you need relatively small differences in floor space um, uh, rents to get relatively large differences in heights. Mm -hmm. So if you get a 10% difference in, uh, in, in rent, you're going to get much more than 10% difference in building heights. Because a lot of substitution is going on here, right? I mean, firms, when, when rents go, go up, they use less space per worker, right? I mean, when um, uh, uh, you build taller, you use less land per um, unit of floor space, right? And um, that explains actually more than I, than I had thought, right? Um, uh, uh, I think um, uh, differences in building heights through plausible variations in amenities. But of course, that's just one part of the story. I mean, the other part of the story clearly is that um, you have vintage effects. I mean, buildings... Um, are durable. They are built at different points in time and at different points in time. You have different construction technologies and you also have um, different rent levels and therefore you also have different um, uh, uh, heights and it's very difficult to change the height of a building ex post, right? So once you have the building at a certain height, it stands there and this creates these discontinuities. But I would also not discard the, the planner, 
Right, I mean, so uh, uh, planners, they have very particular views about buildings and, and, and heights. And usually there is this, this, this trade-off going on in many, many cities where you say, okay, look, I mean, I want to build tall. And the planner tells you, yes, you can, if you give me something in return. Okay? And that can mm-hmm. be, I mean, that can be uh, social housing in many cities, right? I mean, you would be allowed to build taller. But usually it's parking. Parking, <laughs> right? Good, good. I didn't know that, right? Parking is, is a good example. A bad example, actually, but yeah, good, example. <laughs> good bad. Yeah, I mean, so it, if if you if you really want to create density and get 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 parking in return, I mean, you kind of wonder about what the the objective function here really is that the planner is kind of pursuing. <laughs> it's <laughs> a bad one. It's to, a bad one. <laughs> I think you want to maximize the congestion on the road, right? I mean, if you want to do that, yeah, you can exactly. put a skyscraper exactly. with a lot of parking lots. Actually, <laughs> but I, would th- I mean, to me, the durability and like what you what you call the vintage effect seems like you know could account for a lot i mean the amenity the the what you're talking about with the amenity effects is, is very interesting i hadn't thought about i hadn't thought that it would be that predictive of uh, kind of such variation in heights but but yeah just with with uh you know building happening at different moments in time at different rent levels and then you know you, you don't want to tear down the 10 door 10 story building to build a 15 story building right that's usually not not profitable yeah, that must play a big role, right? Although you'd be surprised, I mean, the, uh, about the planner, the role of the planner, that can be quantitatively really, really meaningful. So my colleague, um, Paul Cheshire, he, he, he did this, mm-hmm. this study on London, proving that um, when, you, when you come to the planner and you promise to employ a trophy architect, so a guy who won a Pritzker Prize or something like that, right? Mm-hmm. Then you get some additional 17 floors, right? In wow. a city where the standard <laughs> height is eight, right? And wow. th- this, this can actually also then make quantitatively a very big difference right so um so so yeah so they're so they're huge the huge fees that they're charging can actually be worth it in that sense potentially (laughs) it's getting you it's allowing you to build a much larger building that that's what paul would say paul Paul, Paul would say i mean this is this is a pure that way i mean the whole the the whole benefit is being appropriated by the the architect who walks away and and and, uh that's what frank gary would say too i think yeah (laughs) yeah yeah although i mean i suspect that the planner would rather argue that they're creating a very nice visual um, right? well but haven't don't you have a paper showing that beautiful architecture is uh, valuable to people no, it is. It is <laughs> right. I think the I think the the, the planner here really has um, probably the right intentions, right? I mean, they're trying to do something something good. Um, I don't think we have understood um, the net effects of this policy, so I wouldn't be in a position to really tell you whether um, on that it's 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 good or bad, right? But I'm I would argue that probably it's not that simple that we are simply creating a means to make architects rich, right? I mean, there's also right. another objective that is going on here, right? Which which one then actually um, dominates, right? I mean the the, the, the that way loss or the, the positive externality. I mean, I don't know. I haven't done the math. Sticking with the subject of height and uh, the role of planners in this, your paper concludes with some discussion of height limits, which obviously have a big impact on the places that skyscrapers can be built and what form they take. If you can't build a skyscraper as tall as you'd like because of height limits, it follows that the floor space will probably be built somewhere else maybe further from the city center and in smaller buildings. But your model has quite a bit more to say than just that. I think that that's a basic observation. And I feel like the different impacts on commercial versus residential buildings were particularly interesting. Could you just say a bit about how your model treats height limits and what restrictions on vertical growth mean for how cities sprawl out horizontally or what you find in your model on that question? 
Yeah, you know, I, this is an exciting question. I, I could talk talk about that uh, for for hours, right? And I suspect, I mean, judging from what what Pavel uh, had as a discussion with his colleague Michael, uh, <laughs> I'm sure he he would like to join in the discussion. I mean, let me see how how to keep this reasonably um, reasonably brief. So the, the way I think about that is that most people in the literature. They have used the closed city model to think about the problem. Okay, you take a closed city model. Um, that means basically the population of the city is fixed, no in and out of migration. Okay, um, now you introduce uh, the building height. Okay, what happens? Of course, you reduce the supply of space in the city center. Okay, that crowds out demand to the to the suburbs. Okay, um, uh, you're probably going to convert. I mean, some agricultural land into urban land. Um, uh, as a result of that, you have a city that is sprawling. Still, um, because you have constrained supply, you're going to end up with um, higher rents. So you have a city which is horizontally sprawling and is less affordable. And as a result of that, most economists, I guess, including Pavel, would argue um, it's actually a good idea to relax land use regulations, build taller because we get more compact and more affordable cities. Now, that's... That's all fine, as long as you believe that actually um, uh, the population is fixed, right? The predictions change. They become a little bit more nuanced once you assume the open city model. Okay, let's just think it through. I mean, in this, in this uh, paper, we have an open city model. So in the open city model, if I now introduce a height cap, okay, I'm going to, make, um, uh, going to restrict supply. I'm going to make the city less affordable, more expensive. As a result of that, I'm going to have people leaving the city, or you can also think about fewer people moving into the city if you think about California, okay? Mm -hmm. as, a, as a result, or the city both, is yeah. now... Yeah, or both, right? Yeah. So the city is now small in terms of the population relative to the counterfactual. And now it is entirely possible that you actually end up with a city that is uh, more compact, less horizontally sprawling, because you have fewer people in the city, Right. Um, so you get a very different prediction. I mean, the, 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 the other way around to think about that is if I take the city and I relax the height constraints, right? Temporarily, I make the city cheaper. But now the problem could be that a lot of people are just moving to California, refilling the city, right? Um, uh, and then rent goes up again and the city is as unaffordable um, as it was uh, before, right? Potentially, if you um, have some people in the city who do not gain from agglomeration economies, they could even be worse off, right? Because um, uh, rents go up and wages don't go up, right? But don't get me wrong, I'm not, not taking any sense here at this point. I mean, which of the two models is correct? I'm just saying that it's something we need to think about carefully, right? I mean, the, the standard predictions that we get, right? They, they make sense if we believe that the population is very immobile. If you suspect Fact, however, that people in the U.S. are very mobile, especially when it comes to the to California, right? I mean, you could be in a world where the only reason why they don't move to California is because um, California is just very expensive. And once you make it a little bit cheaper, more people come, right? Then um, the predictions get a bit more ambiguous. So what we really want to have, right, and that's that's um, what I'm working on right now, is you want to have, of course, a model with imperfect mobility, right? I mean, you want to want to think about, okay, what is the true migration elasticity, right? People are going to respond to migration incentives, but of of course, they're not perfectly mobile, right? So you're probably not going to get utility equalization. You're going to have um, uh, uh, um, some adjustment, but this adjustment is imperfect. And then you end up with uh, something um, in between the closed city model and the open city model. And um, yeah, then it essentially depends on the migration elasticity, whether you're going to see uh, that uh, as a result of a height constraint, the city is horizontally sprawling or not. I think um, uh, uh, it's, it's then no longer clear. The first city I thought of kind of in this model was... Uh... San Jose, actually, just because it has, 
I, I looked this up beforehand. Its tallest building is 298 feet tall, and it is a city of more than a million people in one of the two metro areas, of the richest metro areas in the entire world. With an increasing GDP, I'd gather. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I think the GDP is going up there. <laughs> so you, you also took a historical look at how much rents go up as you move to higher floors at different points in time using a very detailed data set that you had for New York City, uh, or I guess maybe it sounds like Jason uh, collected for New York City. And I thought there were a few things worth mentioning here too. One was that there was a sharp drop in the premium paid for higher floors after the September 11th attacks, which I don't think is surprising, but seems like good evidence that your data is reflecting real world trends. The other thing that stood out to me is that the premium never really recovered from what it was before the 2000s. And that might be due to September 11th. It's probably impossible to be sure. But you note that there was a lot more skyscraper construction starting around the turn of the century. And so this may just be reflecting a greater supply of, of skyscraper units or, or you know, units and, and offices on higher floors. So they're not quite as scarce as they used to be. Especially given the, the super tall buildings, these sort of pencil thin towers going up in Manhattan, which are well above the heights of the former Twin Towers, I think, um, and other famous skyscrapers going up you know, all over that city and around the world, the supply and demand explanation seems more likely to me than the concern about future terrorist attacks or other kinds of fears. Tell me if any of that sounds wrong to you, though, and if you have any other ideas, what might be behind the change? But beyond that, what else should we know about how the appeal or value of upper floors, higher floors has changed over time? I think you're 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 spot on. Um, uh, uh, not just with the fact that Jason collected the data, yeah, so that that's true, um, <laughs> but also with your interpretation of the of the results. Um, I thought it would be a cool exercise uh, to do this. Nobody really had done it before, so it's the first time that we that we have a time series of height premium. We need to be a little bit careful with interpretation because it's just the first piece of evidence, and um, we'll see if that holds up if other people um, investigate that and in broader samples. But I think it's fair to say that when I first saw the results, I was a little bit surprised. Um, in urban economics, we do have this idea that, that we are all getting uh, smarter and richer and more creative. And as a result of that, our amenity preference increases. And I thought, I mean, well, okay, I mean, uh, nice view. I mean, that, that's clear in the amenity, right? I mean, if we have an increasing amenity preference, which makes sense, right? Because a view is probably a luxury good. I mean, if you're very poor, you don't care about the view. But I mean, if you're sufficiently rich, you start um, spending money on that. So I thought that maybe over time, the uh, height premium would actually increase. And then I um, uh, we found the opposite, which was surprising to me. And I think you're right. 9-11, that's one explanation. But there's kind of a sense that maybe that effect would be more temporary, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas, I mean, if you if you have something that has a more persistent effect, you, you wanna wanna uh, uh, wanna have um, a slightly different explanation. And yes, I I think if you if you believe that you have a distribution of preferences uh, for this height amenity, some people like it a lot, some people like it okay but not so much right then if you um, have very few uh, uh, flats that, that offer that amenity you pick the one with the highest willingness to pay and you get a huge high premium 
Okay, and then um, as you increase supply, you're going to moving down the distribution of the marginal willingness to pay. And eventually, you end up with a, a lower height premium. So that doesn't. So what you should not do, I think, is to conclude that um, the preference for the height amenity on average decreased over time. I don't think we can say that, right? We can only say that the marginal buyer now has a lower height preference. But this can be because the marginal buyer is now a very different person than it used to be 25 uh, years ago, right? Um, I also kind of wonder. There's, you know, the amenity of the view, but there's also the disamenity of just getting up to a, a home on an 80th floor or something like that's got to be just kind of annoying. I don't know, to, to take a two minute uh, elevator ride or whatever, uh, in the same way that like, you know, living in the Hollywood Hills is very glamorous, but you've also got to drive up these steep, like, you know, one lane windy roads that aren't all that pleasant. So there is some cost there and people are generally willing to pay that cost, but it's not nothing. Um, so I, I do. I think that would, that's an important point as well. Okay. Just adding to that, um, uh, it, it's so the cost of going up in the building that increases linearly, but it's not so clear that the view amenity increases linearly. In fact, my co-author mm -hmm. Dan McMillan, um, uh, who lived in, in tall buildings in Chicago, he tells me from his own experience, uh, he knows that there's a turning point around the 50s floor. After that, actually, the view gets worse because you can't really right. see any away. detail <laughs> yeah. anymore. Right? I mean, so maybe, maybe what's happening is that the view, the kind of this average. Uh, um, it's uh, got to be an inverted U. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Right. And maybe we are just absolutely. Yeah. Well, Gabriel Alfeld, thank you so much for joining our show and talking with us about skyscrapers today. It was a pleasure. Thank you, guys. Thanks. You can read more of Gabriel and Jason Barr's research at our website, lewis.ucla.edu. Show notes and a transcript of the interview are there, too. The UCLA Lewis Center is on Facebook and Twitter. I'm on Twitter at Shane D. Phillips, and Pavo is there at L. Pavo. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. <laughs>